This is from the 300 collection, Shobogenzo, <clears throat> case 189, the main case. Once Zen master Kingji Hongjin was asked by a monk, what happens when you are poor and a thief breaks in? Kingji said, the thief cannot take away anything. The monk said, why can't the thief take away everything? Kingji said, because the thief is in the family. The monk said, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? Kingji said, if there's no help from the inside, an outsider cannot do a thing. The monk said, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? Kingji said, there has never been such a thing as a reward. The monk said, then hard work will result in no accomplishment? And Kingji said, it's not that there is no accomplishment, it's just that it does not last. The monk said, why does the accomplishment not last? Kingji said, don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. The capping verse. Distinguishing enlightenment, dismantling delusion, the bandit leads the sheriff's brigade. Accomplishment, before it is exhausted, is just an extra thumb. So, a few weeks ago, we concluded our spring session. Seems like a while ago, only a few weeks ago. And then next weekend, we dive again into a Zazenkai, a shorter version of what we call intensified practice. Now we've been working on trying to maintain a monthly event, whether it's a Zazenkai or a Sashin, half day meditation. And we do that so we don't have too much time lapse between diving deep. And I think it's working well. But even with that, it doesn't take us much time to lose concentrated energy we cultivate during what we call intensive practice. Amazing to see how we can go from having deep sense of clarity and being grounded to a chaotic state of feeling lost in the vortex of everyday life. Now, clarity doesn't just show up. We take time. There's an effort. There's volition. We take time to cultivate the conditions, to quiet the mind, <laughs> and we develop the intention to stay alert, focused, vigilant. And when we apply concentrated efforts and deeply observe, we begin to see that discontentment is a result of what we do. 
how we think. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just show up. You also begin to recognize that there's another way to exist in this world, another way to be, a way that encourages contentment, happiness, peace, flow. Do you remember, those of you who are there, do you remember how you felt during the closing circle of the Sishin? How did you feel a week later? How do you feel right now? And we end the session with a clear understanding of how vital the practice is. And I think we feel very encouraged to keep it going. So what happens a few days later? How do we go from this to saying, well, maybe I'll see tomorrow. I'll practice on Sunday. I have more important things to attend to right now. What makes it important, vital, precious? What is the difference? How do we go from clarity to obscurity? The momentum dies down, doesn't it? The same with the anger. You know, a little while ago we, we committed to individually, different things. Right? We decided to put these things in the forefront of our priorities. And then little by little they get moved to the back burner. They were important, they seem important. But not so much anymore. It starts to leak the concentration, the intention, Clarity starts to leak. But what, what is obscuring the clarity? Conventionally, it seems as if clarity arises out of some peaceful location of a retreat. And obscurity, it seems, arises out of chaotic everyday affair. But if you practice long enough, you know very well that it's not what happens. Both clarity and obscurity are states of being that arise in you. That means that potentially both states of beings are here now as a potential. This is why some days you fully understand why daily zazen is essential. And some days it feels like a burden and a chore. You would probably rather skip. The Zazen itself is free of likes and dislikes. It's flavorless. So if we just get our butt to the cushion and sit, we are also free of likes and dislikes. Because Zazen is a practice and you are the practice. There is nothing else. There is no extra. We do encounter extra, but there is no extra. It's not the same. Living in a realm of likes and dislikes, our world shrinks down to the size of a dime. We become more possessive, more fearful. Time appears to be running out. 
and sparing some of it for practice just doesn't make sense. I don't have time to sit today. On the other hand, when you empty out completely, I have nothing to left to hold on to. As we often feel at the end of Sishin, then time and space merge into one complete being. And then practice makes perfect sense. You know, instead of being alternates between being susceptible to changing conditions to not minding the changing conditions. When we are grounded, clear, anything could happen and it's fine and it works. We make it work. We find ways to work with it. We don't make it an issue, a drama, an obstacle. We see that it's just that the way life shows up at that moment. And we agree with it. Liking it or not liking it, we still agree with it. We merge with it. And then we go to not agreeing with it. We go between being tight-fisted to being empty-handed back and forth, constantly. So what is it that gives rise or gives power to changing conditions? And how is it that some days we care, some days we don't? Some days we mind, some days we don't. In the dialogue of today's Quran, this monk is asking, what happens when you are poor and a thief breaks in. <coughs> and King Ji says, the thief cannot take away everything or anything. So the monk says, why can the thief take away anything? Because the thief is in the family. And the monk says, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out or she turns out to be a thief? And then King Shi says, if there's no help from the inside, an outsider cannot do a thing. And the footnote says to that last line, says a stranger couldn't know his way around the house. It's a hint, in case you don't see it. A stranger couldn't know his way or her way around the house. Who is the thief? And the footnote is hinting very loudly, I think, that you are the deceiver and the deceived, the perpetrator and the victim. But without knowing the inner workings of that mechanism and without maintaining a disciplined practice, we just keep fighting ourselves and blaming something or somebody. In the Chapana Sutra, the Buddha talked about that process using an analogy of six animals as a way to illuminate the workings of the six thieves. As you know, the gang of six thieves is referring to our senses, 
by which we hear, smell, see, taste, touch, think. The six ways by which we interpret our reality. Well, the six ways, but there are countless ways in which we are <coughs> deceiving ourselves. So here, in this section of this sutra, the Buddha talks about understanding discipline using the term restraint and lack thereof. So what is lack of restraint, he says? There is the case where a monk, well, that's us, seeing a form with the eye is obsessed with pleasing forms, is repelled with unpleasing forms, and remains with body mindfulness unestablished. Body mindfulness unestablished. With limited awareness, he does not discern, as it actually is present, the awareness release, the discernment release, where any evil, unskillful mental qualities that have arisen utterly cease without remainder. That we do not see. That this person does not see. That what arises vanishes. Because we are imprisoned by what we see what we taste, what we touch, what we think about, what we taste and touch and see. This is a description of someone who is still bound by his or her senses and therefore runs towards what is pleasing and away from what is not pleasing. And then he says, hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an aroma with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching tactile sensation with the body, Cognizing an idea with the intellect, he, she, obsessed with pleasing ideas, is repelled by unpleasing ideas and remains with body mindfulness unestablished, with limited awareness. She does not discern, as it actually is present, the awareness release, the discernment release, where any evil, unskillful mental qualities have not, that have not arisen, utterly cease without remainder. Then it then goes on to using the analogy of the animals. Just as if a person catching six animals of different ranges, of different habitats, were to bind them with a strong rope. Catching a snake, he would bind it with a strong rope. Catching a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a hyena, a monkey. He would bind them with a strong rope, binding them all and tying a knot in the middle. You have to use your imagination here. So binding them all together and then tying one knot in the middle of those six animals, he would then set them free. Then those six animals of different ranges, of different habitats, would each pull toward its own range and habitat. The snake would pull, thinking, I'll go into the anthill. The crocodile would pull, thinking, I'll go into the water. The bird would think, I'll fly into the air. The dog would pull, thinking, I'll go into town. The hyena would, think, would pull, thinking, I'll go into charnel ground, where I can find some dead animals to eat. The monkey would pull, thinking, I'll go into the forest. 
So, when these six animals become internally exhausted, they would submit, they would surrender, they would become under the sway of whichever among them is the strongest. In the same way, when a monk who is, whose mindfulness immersed in the body is undeveloped and unpursued, somebody who does not practice sincerely, deeply, long enough, the eye pulls towards pleasing forms, while unpleasing forms are repelled. The ear pulls towards pleasing sounds, the nose pulls towards pleasing aromas, the tongue pulls towards pleasing flavors, the body pulls towards pleasing tactile sensations, the intellect pulls towards pleasing ideas, or my own ideas. While unpleasing ideas are repelled. This is what I call lack of restraint. And then he says, so what is restraint? There is a case where a monk, seeing a form with the eye, is not obsessed with pleasing forms, and is not repelled by unpleasing forms, and remains with body mindfulness established, with immeasurable awareness. She discerns, as it actually is present, the awareness release, the discernment release where all evil, unskillful mental qualities that have arisen utterly cease without remainder. So there is awareness. So there is something that is beyond the automatic going towards, going away, being or liking something or disliking something. So this is a description of someone who is not bound by the senses and is able to see that they arise and vanish without a trace. So he, she, does not obey these senses blindly and does not automatically follow them. A big difference. What's different is not in what happens. What is always different is, the way, is in the way we perceive what's going on. What's going on is always what's going on. Then he says, hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an aroma with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a tactile sensation with the body, cognizing an idea with the intellect, she is not obsessed with pleasing ideas, is not repelled by unpleasing ideas, and remains present, remains with body mindfulness established. She discerns as it actually present, the awareness release, the discernment release, where all evil and skillful mental qualities cease without remainder. Just as if a person catching six animals of different ranges. Then he says, catching a snake, he would bind it with a strong rope. Catching a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a monkey, he would bind each one of them with a strong rope. Now, binding them all with a strong rope she would tether them to a strong post or stake. So that's where the difference is. It's not just a knot that is moving with the pull. There is a stable, grounded center to the chaos. Then these six animals of different ranges of different habitats with each pool to its own range of habitat. 
So he goes on to the saying the same thing. Each animal will pull to its own habitat. And then he said, when these six animals become internally exhausted, they would stand, sit or lie down right next to the post. So they will not succumb to whoever, to whichever is stronger. Because they are not fighting each other. At some point, when you don't go automatically, when you don't feed the chaos, when you don't run towards, run away, when you practice, when there is a center, <coughs> then the senses, then you realize, and the senses realize, I'm just going to sit here for a while. Maybe you have to exhaust. Maybe we have to exhaust ourselves, as he says here. We have to exhaust ourselves, and we do. It's actually a good thing. Bottom out, as we as we say sometimes. So, in the same way, when a monk whose mindfulness immersed in the body is developed and pursued, the eye does not pull towards pleasing forms, and unpleasing forms are not repelling. The ear does not pull towards pleasing sounds. The nose does not go towards pleasing aromas. The tongue does not go towards pleasing flavors. And the body is not going automatically to pleasing tactile sensations. And the intellect does not pull towards pleasing ideas or away from unpleasing ideas. This, monks, I call restraint. And he says, thus you should train ourselves, or we should train ourselves, right? We will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. That's the post. We will pursue it, hand it the reins, and take it as the basis, give it a grounding. We will steady it, consolidate it, and set it about properly. That is how you should train yourself. That's how we should train ourselves. We have to keep going back. We go back daily. We go back to everyday sitting. We go back to Zazenkais and Sashins. We go back, it doesn't mean that we don't feel the pull off sensations, thoughts. With that pull, we still go back. Because what we do is we cultivate that post that ground, that stability from which power to work with what comes arises. But it doesn't, again, it doesn't just show up. It takes effort. It takes intention. This sustainability seems to be what we always have to address and work on. So every once in a while, we have to go back to talking about it, to addressing an issue that, is, that we're all facing. And I think it's relevant even after practicing for a long time, to stay aware, not to get drowsy, to tighten up the slack. When anchored deeply in practice, the six senses, or gang of six thieves, are not in opposition to each other, nor are they able to steal reality from you. Your practice is the post 
That is what is being described here. And the commitment to practice must be action-oriented. In other words, less talking, more doing. Doing deep Prajnaparamita, doing deep wisdom that can only manifest in actions. You remember the last two lines of the Five Remembrances, the Buddha said, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. That's the post. That's the ground. What you do matters, not what you say. Or if what you say does not, does not become action, it's meaningless. The monk said, <clears throat> if, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? And Kinji says, there's never been such a thing to call a reward. When the footnote says, don't you see? There is no payoff. There's just the road ahead. So the monk says, then hard work will result in no accomplishment? Yes. And then Kinji says, it's not that there is no accomplishment. It's just that it does not last. And the footnote says, adds to that, let it go and get on with your life. But we want a reward, right? We want an acknowledgement for everything we do. Otherwise, the efforts don't seem to justify, to be justified. Now, any extra can become a burden and a hindrance. So we must let it go. Mr. Suzuki said, burn yourself completely through the actions, like a good bonfire, leaving nothing behind, to walk without leaving any traces, to not practice for freeing oneself, to practice for practice, to walk, to walk, just for the sake of walking, not to think, I'm the one who has done this, so now I will... I am, uh, I deserve to kick back and relax and enjoy. Gotta watch out. Be careful. Be vigilant. Because the thief always has one eye open, ready to go, ready to jump in, on an opportunity if it is given if it is given. Now we have, we, we have to remember we're dealing with persistent habits, very persistent habits, that some of which have been, has been passed on to us many generations, and some were accumulated during our lifetime. I think it's very important that we understand the challenges of working with these habits, and it's important to practice with full honesty. We have become experts in matter of self-deceit. Since we are the buyers and the sellers, we know exactly how to package excuses in the most convincing way and then compromise on practicing on a part-time basis. Make it a hobby. Make it what I do on Sundays or every other Sunday or once a month. 
from the moment we enter the door of any practice center, we need to embrace the practice on a full-time basis rather than dabble in and out of it. Do you think it's realistic? Do you think it's too much to ask of ourselves? Now, to embrace practice full-time means to keep renewing the decision to shine the light on our habits. We need to study the workings of the six senses, or the six thieves. To face, to look. We need to do that through daily commitment to jhana, prajna and sila. Jhana is, if you don't know, the Sanskrit word for meditation, which later on in China was pronounced as channa. Chan. Later on became Zen. So to uphold jhana only means to sit in zazen every day, to meditate daily. That's all that means. Prajna is wisdom, which is a concept means nothing. To uphold practice of wisdom, we need to dive deeply into the first noble truth, right understanding. It means to understand that while we may feel as if we exist separately from all that surrounds us, in reality nothing exists unto itself. To practice from there, to bring about wisdom from there. And Sila refers to the precepts. To uphold the precepts means to embody the understanding of prajna as we function and coexist with all that surrounds us. Peoples, animals, plants, our planet, inanimate objects. It takes effort. Continuous effort. And we don't always feel like putting the effort, putting the time, showing up. Often there is something better to do. But who is saying that? Look carefully, look deeply. Who is fighting against who? Who is the thief? At the end of this dialogue, the monk still pushing, so he asks, why does the accomplishment not last? And then Kingji says, Don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. And the footnote says, If the general is still around, how can it be called a peaceful society? When freedom of self is attained, do you think there is a conqueror and a defeated? Yes, it is true that we have to have the courage of a warrior who is ready to fearlessly go to battle. But the battle is not for the purpose of eradicating an enemy, although it seems like that when we deal with our destructive habits. Now, recently, a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked about that dragon over there that we have on the altar and what it has in its claw, the pearl. And I told him that in the course of 
Zen training, we each must go into the cave of demons, face the fierce blue dragon, and snatch the pearl of wisdom from its claw. He then asked, who is the blue dragon? Who is the blue dragon? Now this is a question that only you can answer. And the only way to answer it is by facing our fears, our habits, and the way we subjugate to our senses. There's no other way. Or there's no shortcut. Although actually Zen is considered the shortcut method. Because it points directly to it. Because we have to put it at the tip of our nose because we have to practice without, without delay. Because opportunities are lost. I found an interesting description of what we do. And I want to share that with you, maybe finish with that. According to Zen teaching, the inclination to become engrossed in subjective habits of thought and feelings is precisely what inhibits the human mind from, reali from realization or from realizing enlightenment. And that's key. This inclination is so strong that it is ordinarily that it fills any lock, gap, or opening in the continuum of mental habit in an automatic manner. It just goes on. All the time. The Zen doubt, buffered with the Zen faith, is a powerful tool for overcoming this limitation of the human mentality. And the Zen Khan is an extremely powerful tool for creating and sustaining the Zen doubt. So it's a very interesting dis description. It's exactly what we do. Well, it's exactly what happens. What we do with it is where the choice is. What we do with it. <coughs> so to show up, to show up at practice over and over and over again, with or without wanting to show up, Stop asking the question, should I sit or should I not sit? Is there something better to do today? Because the thief is in the house and the thief is very versed in selling and buying. The thief will deceive. You will deceive yourself. Be vigilant. Thank you.